Easter is coming up in a few weeks. And as you may have heard, statistically, people are more open to coming to church on Easter Sunday than any other Sunday of the year. So as a general result, there will be more people attending church on Easter Sunday than on any other Sunday this year. Now, as a church, we want to take advantage of this openness and this willingness to invite people to church. Now, our purpose in this isn't to have a big number so that we can say, look at how many people we had in church. Rather, the reason is that that numbers represent people. The numbers represent people who will gather with us. They will sing songs of praise to God with us. They will be given an opportunity to experience God's presence. They will hear the gospel proclaimed. They will then be given an opportunity to call on Jesus to save them. We want to talk about inviting people or make a big push to invite people. It is always for the sake of seeing the lost saved, to see the prodigal restored, and to see the believer become more and more like Jesus. So what I'm going to do this week and next is to encourage us to pray for the service, to invite people within our sphere of influence to come, and then pray some more. Right? We're going to do this because Jesus saves. And we're starting this two-week series by answering the question, what makes the salvation that Jesus provides so great that we would go through the effort of inviting people to come? Then we would pray for them to come and pray for their salvation. Open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. It's page 927 in the Pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 2 and 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. The title of the message this morning is, Why Salvation is So Great. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We gather today with a desire to meet with You, to hear from You, to draw closer to You. Father, as we look today at at why salvation is so great, open our hearts and open our minds to receive this. Father, help us, Lord, even though that we have received the salvation that Jesus provides, even though we understand that it is great, Father, let this stir within us, Lord, a, a renewed excitement about what Jesus has done. Let it stir within us a renewed zeal to, to see this happen in other people's lives. Father, enlarge our view of who you save and how you save. Oh God, today, just let your Holy Spirit work in our hearts and let your word bring change and transformation that we need. Renew our minds, transform our lives, be glorified in all that happens. Let your Holy Spirit fill me and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Don't let me be a hindrance in any way to what you want done. We ask all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the main theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than angels. 
Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than the sacrifices that were made under the law. Jesus is the greatest there is. And anything we suffer as we serve Jesus is worth it because in the end, we get Jesus and He's greater. Now where we pick up, the author has just reminded them that Jesus is greater than Moses and angels. And that leads him to the therefore, we must give the more earnest heed. Now we're going to come back to that part at the end of the message, but for now... I want us to drop down to just one phrase in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The author of Hebrews describes the salvation that Jesus provides as a so great salvation. And what I'm going to do today is give us some reasons why the salvation that Jesus provides is so great. My hope is that what we look at today, it will renew our confidence in the saving power of Jesus so that we will pray for the Easter service, we will invite people to come, and then we will pray some more. So number one, salvation is great because of who Jesus saves. Now the salvation that Jesus gives, it is amazing. But who exactly does Jesus save? Does Jesus save homosexuals or only straight people? Does Jesus save Muslims or only those who have some sort of a Christian background? Does Jesus save those who are in the country illegally or only American citizens? Does Jesus save those who come from bad families or only those who come from good families? Does Jesus save those who have ruined their lives in sin Or does He only save those who have basically lived good lives? Who exactly does Jesus save? Well, let's look to Scripture to find the answer. First, we know that Jesus saves sinners. One of the greatest dangers we face is to underestimate the saving power of Jesus Christ. Have you ever known somebody that you knew they desperately needed Jesus, but you didn't even bother inviting them to church or sharing Jesus with them because you really didn't think they would ever be saved. And I don't mean you figure that they would reject Jesus, but you really don't even think someone like that would ever come to Christ. I mean, we think things maybe like there's no point in talking to them and inviting them for Easter because nobody in their family has ever gone to church as long as I've known them. Is it possible That we look at people who are living certain kinds of life and we assume, well, that person is so far gone in sin that there's no way they can ever be pulled back out. Or are they so uninterested in spiritual things or eternity that they'll never be concerned enough to call on Jesus to save them? I think this attitude is easy to have. It is easy for us to develop this attitude, particularly with people we know. But this attitude is contrary to Scripture. I love this passage, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, right away, Paul starts with a hard statement. Those who are unrighteous, they'll not go to heaven is essentially the idea of the kingdom of God. There's more to it, but that's the basics. Those who are unrighteous and live unrighteous lives, they will not be a part of the kingdom of God. 
Now, Paul knows human nature. And human nature is such that if Paul were just to say, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, every one of us would interpret that as unrighteousness is what other people do. But what I do, that's fine. It's good enough. But what you do, that is unrighteous. Right? We would give ourselves a buy in the stuff that we do that's not right. So Paul doesn't leave it in the realm of just generalities. He begins to get very specific. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty long list of people who are unrighteous and have no part in the kingdom of God. And he tells them at the beginning, do not be deceived. Right? Don't think that if you're living in this lifestyle, you'll be the exception because you're not. Unrighteous, these things are unrighteous. And if you live in these ways, you will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And these are familiar things, but I do want to spend just a minute defining them a little bit. Fornication and adultery. Basically, sex outside the bonds of a heterosexual marriage is always a sin. But there is never a time when it's not. The term used for fornication referred to direct sexual behavior between people as well as indirect participation in an audience. So this would include pornography as well as physical sexual immorality. Idolatry. Now, idolatry in our culture is seen in a couple of different ways. Idolatry is seen when someone creates an idea about what God is like that's contrary to Scripture. Say, for instance, this list. Look at someone would take this list and say, well, I don't think God cares about these things anymore. I think times have changed and God is okay with these things. That is idolatry because you're creating an image of God that is contrary to God and how He is and how He has revealed Himself. Idolatry is also seen when someone gives anything other than Jesus the place of preeminence in our heart. But Jesus has declared that He is to be first above all else in our lives. And any time we let someone or something else have that place of preeminence in our hearts, we are, we are committing idolatry. Stealing. Taking stuff that doesn't belong to us. Homosexuality. Paul uses two different words to describe homosexuality in this passage. The two words sort of describe different ways homosexuality can be lived out. One refers to men who dress and act like women, translated in the, New King, or in the King James as effeminate. It would basically be transgenderism. And the other just refers to a man or a woman who has sex with someone outside of their gender or with, the, with their same gender. Coveting is described as a desire that can never be fulfilled. Covetous people can no more satisfy their desire for more than you can fill up a bowl with a hole in the bottom. But coveting isn't just saying, I would like a better life or I would like a better car. Coveting is saying it is a desire that is overwhelming. And when you get the better car, you think, man, there's still another better car out there that I would like. There's still something more that I would like. And it's never satisfied. It is always a desire for more, more, more. Drunkards. Drunkards would include those that what we might call alcoholics as well as social drinkers who get drunk. Drunkenness is always a sin in Scripture. Revilers are basically people who abuse others through their words. 
Revilers verbally abuse people through ranting and raving, profanity and slanderous speech. And extortioners are people who take money and things from others through either schemes or force. Now, all of these are what we might call serious sins. Right? These are big things in our minds. So serious that Paul does say, don't be deceived, that those who live these lives, they have no part in the kingdom of God. And if that's all that this passage said, it would be clear, but it wouldn't be comforting. The comforting part is when Paul said, and such were some of you. But Corinth was a wicked place. Corinth was a place where all of these things were seen and shared and endorsed and glorified. So they were saved out of all of those lifestyles. But something happened. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Right? They lived in all of those lifestyles. And those lifestyles, most of them in our day, are ones that our deep people are deeply entrenched by. People who live in those sort of lifestyles, we typically say, that's the kind of person that would never come to Jesus. That's the kind of person that would never come to church. That's the kind of person that has gone too far. They can never be redeemed by the grace of God. And yet the Apostle Paul says, some of you were these things until Jesus came onto the picture. And then Jesus saved you, and then the Holy Spirit sanctified you. So as we seek to invite people to church, and we pray for them to come and for them to be saved, we need to remember that what kind of, regardless of what kind of life they are living, Jesus can save them. There is no one so entrenched in their sin that Jesus Christ cannot pull them out. There is no one so convinced that their sin is right that the Holy Spirit cannot show them that they're wrong. There is no one that is beyond the love of God and His desire and ability to save them. So we pray with confidence, we bite with confidence, and then we pray some more knowing these are people Jesus can and wants to save. Uh, Jesus also saves the religious. That may sound like a strange thing to say, but you know we live in a multicultural world, and I think it's safe to say it'll always be that way. And one of the results of living in a multicultural world is that there is a rise in other religions in most communities. In days gone by, about the only religion in any town was Christianity. But that's not the way it is anymore. And in most cases, the people in these other religions, they are as deeply entrenched in their religion as any Christian is in theirs. Like Christians, they have been taught to see that their religion is the only correct religion. And I think there are two temptations that we face when we encounter folks who are, have a different religion than we do. One is to see them as the enemy. Not they're the, the enemy that's trying to destroy our culture, our way of life, or whatever. The other is feeling that these folks cannot be reached. I mean, again, they're, they've been discipled into this false religion. They cannot be reached now. Both of these ideas are false. And they'll keep us from reaching out to people of other religions when we need to. There's one passage, I think, that destroys both of the ideas that I mentioned. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. 
lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I think this passage perfectly refutes the two ideas that they are our enemies and that they are unsavable. One, we see that they're not our enemies because really they are deceived. Right? Whose mind the God of this age has blinded. People who follow other religions, they're not our enemies. Instead, they are deceived and enslaved by the devil. Right? It's similar to Ephesians 6 telling us that our enemy is not flesh and blood. Right? Satan will use whatever means he can to keep a person blinded to the truth about Jesus Christ because he wants them to perish. This is the mission of the one Jesus said came to steal, kill, and destroy. Rather than seeing people of other religions, regardless of what religion it is, as the enemy, we should see them as people who are enslaved and deceived by the devil. In a lot of ways, you could say they're victims of the greatest evil that there is in the world, Satan. But adherence to other religions can absolutely be saved just like anyone else can. But in order for them to be saved, someone has to tell them about Jesus. Right? So, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus, who is the image of God. Right? And as Jesus is preached to them, God will cause the light to shine in the darkness. God will cause the light of the gospel to penetrate the darkness of their minds and of their hearts so that they can see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. They will see their need for Jesus. And at that point, they have a choice to make. Right? They can choose to reject Jesus and stay blinded, or they can choose Jesus and be saved. But God can shine the darkness, or shine the light in their darkness so that they are given that choice. Make no mistake, Jesus loves the religious people. And this is true no matter how they feel about Him. Jesus loves Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Buddhists and the person that practiced Santeria or is involved in any other religion or New Age Spiritism. Jesus loves them. They are not our enemies. They are people whom Jesus loves, that Jesus died for, and that Jesus wants to save. And not only does Jesus love them and want to save them, but Jesus really can save them. They may well be indoctrinated and entrenched in their religion, but they are not so indoctrinated and entrenched that Jesus cannot save them. We do not have time this morning to get into it, but read the life of the Apostle Paul. He is the perfect example of a religious person deeply entrenched in an antichrist mentality that was delivered and saved by Jesus. But Paul, in the passage I read at the beginning, was a blasphemer and a persecutor, and an insolent man. All of those things. He blasphemed the name of Jesus. He persecuted the church of Jesus Christ, and he enjoyed the hardships that he brought upon those people. He enjoyed hurting them because they were declaring the name of Jesus. And yet, Jesus saved him. But Paul, in a lot of ways, you could say that Paul... If Paul lived today, he would be on a terrorist watch list. Because that's all he did. He went around the world 
finding Jews who professed faith in Jesus, and he terrorized them. You can die, you can go to jail, or you can renounce Christ. Those are your only choices in life. And yet Jesus drew him out of that. There is no one so indoctrinated in their religion that Jesus can't save them out of it. There is no darkness so deep in a person's heart or mind that the light of the gospel cannot penetrate it. Yes, these people are lost. Yes, they are very blinded to the gospel. And yes, they are often very, very difficult to reach. But they are not unreachable. Difficult to reach and unreachable is not the same thing. Jesus wants to save them. And Jesus can save them. As you invite someone to church and you pray for them to come and for Jesus to save them, remember that regardless of what kind of spiritual belief they have or have had in the past, Jesus can save them from their false spiritual and religious beliefs. And then Jesus also receives and restores backsliders. I think the story of the prodigal son gives us a great picture of Jesus receiving and restoring backsliders. You're probably familiar with the story of the prodigal son, but let me hit the high points anyway. There's a younger son, and he tells his dad one day, he said, hey, I'm tired of living here, and I want my share of the inheritance. That's a very disrespectful thing to say because the inheritance only comes after the dad's dead. So in a lot of ways, he says, I'm tired of living by your rules. I wish you were dead so I could go do whatever I want to do. Why don't you go ahead and make, that, make it like that's what happened. So the dad, being kind and gracious, gives him what would be his share of the inheritance. And then he goes off and he goes into a far land. He leaves far away from his father's house. And he begins to live riotous living, the Bible says. Begins to live in all sorts of sin and wickedness and debauchery. And, and things are going pretty great for him. And he's enjoying life. Thinks nothing of his father, of his brother, the land that he came from. Until one day a famine comes to the land and his money runs out. And there's no jobs, there's no friends, there's no one to help him. And he needs a job. And the only job he can find is what would be the worst job for a Jewish man. And that would be to slop the hogs. For a Jewish man who sees pigs as unclean, to have to feed the hogs would be degrading. Be the bottom thing. There was nothing else left. But even though he had a job slopping the hogs, he didn't really even make enough to provide for his own meals. And so as he slopped the hogs, he looked at that and said, Gosh, I wish I had a bowl of that to eat myself. Now you've got to be hungry. To look at hog slop and think that could be some good eating right there. And after he hit that point, he had a realization. He hit rock bottom there. And he said, he came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to eat despair and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. When he hit rock bottom, he realized what he needed to do was go back to the father. Now, he didn't want to go back to be a son. He figured he had done too much. He was out of, the, out of the will. But if he could just go back and be a servant to his dad, that would be better than slopping hogs and longing for hog slop to eat. But what he found is that his father welcomed him with open arms, fell on his neck and kissed him, put a robe on him, put shoes on him, put a ring on him, fully received him back into the family as a son. You know, some folks get saved and they're just rock solid from that point on. They, they never waver, they never falter. 
They never stumble. But others, others get saved and have a time where they wander away from Christ. And some wander in different ways. Some don't wander far, but some do wander very far. They wander into terrible sin. They make horrible life choices and they bring to themselves awful consequences because of what they've done. And and probably we can all think of people that would fit into this category. But what we have to remember is that just as the Father loved His Son, Jesus still loves those people. Just as the Father received and restored His Son, Jesus will receive and restore those people if they'll come back. If they'll come back to Jesus, He'll accept them, He'll receive them, and He'll restore them. And when He restores them, they're not restored as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. They're restored really as though they had never left to begin with. They're fully restored as sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with Christ. As you invite someone to church and pray for them to come, for Jesus to save them, remember regardless of what kind of life they are living or what they have done, Jesus will receive them and Jesus will restore them. He, he longs to do that. So salvation is great because of who Jesus saves. But salvation is also great because of the way that Jesus saves. How does Jesus save us? What does He do in us and through us and for us that makes salvation so great? Well, first, He saves us from the punishment of sin. Now, this is a familiar concept, but it's not something to be underestimated. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And that's a problem. Because Scripture also teaches that the wages of this sin... Well, it's death. Through sin, we we earn something. We earn judgment. And we earn condemnation. And we earn death. Because we've sinned against God. Well, the, the consequences for sinning and rebelling against an infinitely holy and powerful God, it's not merely physical death, but spiritual death. Spiritual death is also called the second death in the book of Revelation. And it's being cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. I mean, that's a terrible thought. That's something that ought to horrify us. If we're not horrified by the thought of hell, we haven't thought about it enough. But thankfully, Jesus can save us from the punishment that we have earned from sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is, a, this is one of my favorite verses. The genuine believer in Jesus Christ will not be judged as a sinner. The genuine believer in Jesus Christ is, is forever freed from the penalty of sin and the condemnation of sin. Now, what I like about this, part of what I like about it is notice when this freedom from condemnation is. Is it you are therefore no condemnation in Christ to those who are perfect? Is it there is therefore no condemnation once you get your life squared away? Is it there's no condemnation if you come to church every time the doors are open and and you've got a a long history of faithful attendance and generous giving? No. There is now, right now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you are 
genuinely trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, right now, at this moment, you are fully and forever free of condemnation. And that is a wonderful thought. Hell will not be the home of any genuine believer of Jesus Christ. No one goes to hell who is believing and trusting in Jesus, ever. Now, does that mean that that we never sin? Man, I wish that's what it meant, but it doesn't. Unfortunately, the struggle is always there. The world, the flesh, and the devil will always be fighting for control of our lives. They will always be trying to lead us to go away from the way that Jesus wants us to go. And unfortunately, sometimes we'll go the way they want us to go. Sometimes we will lose that struggle and we will sin. Does that mean, in that moment when we've blown it, we've sinned, does that take us from a place where there is no condemnation to a place where there is now condemnation? No. No, it does not. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says that, I write these things to you, little children, that you do not sin. Right, there's the standard. Don't sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one who is the propitiation for our sin and not ours only, for the whole world. So when is Jesus our advocate, according to that verse? When we do everything right or when we blow it? When we sin, we have an advocate. Jesus is always on the side of the believer. Always. So there is never any condemnation for a believer in Jesus Christ. As you invite someone for Easter and you pray for them to come and for Jesus to save them, remember, regardless of what kind of life they've lived, regardless of what kind of things they may have done, Jesus can and will save them from the punishment of sin. Take them from a place of condemnation to a place where there is no condemnation. Secondly, Jesus saves us from the power of sin. Not only does Jesus save us from the punishment of sin, but also from the power of sin. Now, this is incredibly important for us to get. Those whom Jesus saves are no longer enslaved to their sinful nature. Right now, Scripture teaches prior to coming to Jesus, we are enslaved to the sinful natures, the desires of our sinful nature. But what happens when we come to Jesus? Does, it, does Jesus just take us to a place where there's no condemnation but doesn't change anything within us? Is there nothing that happens in here to make my life different? Well, there is. We are debtors but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Therefore, is important. Everything that Paul has written in Romans 8 verses 1 through 11 is true. So, something happens. Now, we don't have time to get through Warren. 1 through 11 of Romans, but Romans 8. But take time this week, take time today and read it. Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, it's been called. Read it, read it often, meditate on it, learn it, memorize it, quote it to yourself. But we have no obligation because all of the stuff that Jesus has done for us is true. Because we're in Christ and we're not condemned, we have no obligation, which is what that means to do what our sinful nature desires. You should think about that. So the war rages. The pool is there. The temptation is there. 
but I don't have to give in to it any longer. Now, before I was saved, I didn't have much of a choice. I was enslaved by it. But now that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and a joint heir with Christ, I've been set free. I have no obligation. I can. I can submit myself to the sinful nature. I can give in to it. But, and this is key, I don't have to. Now, there's something, this is a two-edged sword. One side is encouraging. One side is convicting. The encouraging part, well, let's start with the convicting part and encourage at the end. The convicting part, since I have no obligation to do what my sinful nature desires, and I'm free, guess what that means every time I sin? It's my fault. I mean, I, I made a conscious choice to do what my sinful nature wanted. I, I made a conscious choice to resist the Holy Spirit who is pulling me to follow the ways of Jesus. And I made a conscious choice to resist Him and to submit to my sinful nature or to submit to the devil's temptations or to submit to the world's leading. But I did it. It's all my fault. I made a willful choice to do what I knew God did not want me to do. And that's something as a believer we all have to accept. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not have to sin. And when you do, it is a willful choice that you make. It is a willful choice that I make. I can't blame Kelly for making me angry. I can't blame politics for being stupid. I can't blame anyone or anything. It is always me who is at fault for my sin. And it's always you who's at fault for your sin if you're a believer. That's the challenging, but the encouraging part is I can not sin. I mean, I know the war. I feel it. I'm aware of it. I can resist that. I can overcome that. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of God, I can not sin. I can choose to do what's right. How awesome is that? To be able to make that choice to do what I know Jesus wants me to do. That is available to us through Jesus Christ. As you invite someone to church and you pray for them to come and pray for Jesus to save them, remember that regardless of what kind of life they are living or what they have done, Jesus can save them from the power of sin and He can lead them in a life of holiness and purity and devotion to Him. He absolutely can. Jesus saves from the penalty of sin. Jesus saves from the power of sin. And then Jesus saves through faith. And this is where it gets hard. And it gets hard because we have to receive salvation by faith and as a gift. And what that means is we, not just that we don't work to earn it, but we can't work to earn it. You and I, we can't be good enough to save ourselves. We can't do enough good works for God to say, you've qualified, now you're saved. Even the works we do after we're saved, they're not as a way to pay Jesus back for all He has done. We're not repaying a debt. 
Salvation isn't a loan that we work to fix. We work to pay back. It is a gift that is given to us through faith in Jesus. All of our good deeds, apart from Christ, they are like filthy rags, the Bible says. Now that's the good deeds. That's not the bad deeds. So what are our bad deeds like, I wonder? So what we have to do is we have to understand that salvation is a gift of faith. And that in order to be saved, we have to accept salvation as a gift of faith. And we have to accept that it's either received that way or it is not received at all. There is only one way to be saved. And that is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Right? None of us will make it to heaven, stand before the Lord, and say, We did it, God! You and me! You kind of helped me over the hump, and there was a few times where I wondered, but me and you, we, we did it. A lot of me, some of you, we did it. Woo! Nope. We're going to get to heaven, and we're going to say, you did it. I was terrible. Man, my heart wasn't right. My thoughts weren't right. My mouth wasn't right. My actions weren't right. I had a terrible attitude. My values were off. My priorities were wrong. Woo, you kept me. You saved me. You loved me. You didn't give up on me. Salvation is received as a gift of God, or it is not received at all. But the faith that we have to have for the salvation, it's not just a general faith. But it's not just a general faith that there is a God. And it's not just a general faith that maybe it's even the God of the Bible. And to be really honest, it's not even necessarily just a faith that there was a Jesus who lived and died. It is a very particular kind of faith. It is a faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is a faith that believes that what Jesus did in His sinless life, in His sacrificial death, and in His victorious resurrection, that that is the only hope I have. It is a faith that says I am righteous only because of Jesus. I have no righteousness of my own. I just have Jesus. If I am trusting in Jesus plus me, I am not trusting in Jesus. We're in Galatians in our Sunday school, and Paul makes the big point. If you're going to be circumcised to earn your salvation and understand Christ profits you nothing. Right? If you're going to keep the law to be justified, then understand you become estranged from Christ. If I choose to earn my salvation, I miss Jesus altogether. It is grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Not me plus Jesus, not anything plus Jesus. That's the kind of faith that we have to have. That is the only kind of faith that saves. There are no good works that we do to earn our salvation. There are no good works that we do to help in our salvation. My friend, there are not even any good works that keep us saved after Jesus has forgiven us. From start to finish, our salvation is dependent on faith in Christ. He saves by faith. Now, let's return to Hebrews 2 and 1. That's just the introduction to the actual message. 
Not really. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Since Jesus is greater, then we give the more earnest heed to the message of Jesus. Right? The message that was began, that first began to be spoken by the Lord and that was confirmed by those who heard Him. And we give the more earnest heed because if we don't, what happens? We begin to drift away. And I would love to spend a lot of time on this, but we don't have it today. But the word drift away, it carries with it the idea of carelessness. The opposite of giving earnest heed to the message about Jesus. It's not necessarily outright rejection of Jesus. It is just being careless with the message of Jesus. Careless says, maybe later. Careless says, well, that's important, but but I've got other stuff to do now. Careless says, I'm not going to think on it. I'm not going to meditate on it. I'm not going to depend on it. Careless isn't necessarily Jesus isn't real. Careless is just, I've got other things that are more important here and now, right now. Careless is just not earnest heed, paying very careful attention to the message of Jesus. When we don't pay that earnest heed, we we drift. We become careless. And drifting is not a big, giant step. It's a small step. It's a little step here and a little step there. And over time, it leads to a great big distance between us and Jesus. Now, what's the result of carelessness with the message of Jesus? We'll look at verses 2 and 3. If the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Now, just reward, we know from the Old Testament, that's not like ice cream, right? In the Old Testament, the just reward was like fiery serpents, the ground opening up and swallowing them. Things like that. So from the Old Testament, every transgression and disobedience received its just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? See, carelessness with the message of Jesus can cause us to neglect or miss out on the salvation of Jesus. In the author's question, if we are careless and we neglect the salvation of Jesus, how are we going to escape the judgment to come? Well, the implied answer is we won't. We won't. Our children won't. Our grandchildren won't. Our next door neighbors won't. Our friends won't. No one will escape the judgment to come if they neglect Jesus. This is true whether the neglect comes in the form of outright rejection or simple carelessness. Many of the people we want to come to church and be saved, they're not anti-Christ and anti-church. They're just careless about it talked to a guy and invited him to church and I'd invite him several times and, and he said it's not that I don't think it's important I think it's a good thing 
I just don't want to do it right now. Right? He's, I bet if you were to press him, he would believe in Jesus. But at the moment, he's not taking earnest heed. He is being careless. He is drifting away. How will he escape the judgment to come? And neglecting the salvation of Jesus Christ. We want people to come so they can hear the message of Jesus and they can take earnest heed to it. And they can believe on Him. And they can be saved. We do not want our friends and our relatives and our associates and our neighbors to die and face the judgment to come because they were just careless about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.